I actually started with a writing course in uh, 2016, and it was just a kind of a creative writing uh, at the college, Delaware County College, and um, didn't get a whole lot out of it, frankly, but I think a window opened. I'm really into Victorian um, era, and I'm really into Jack the Ripper, major Jack the Ripper fan. I've, I've studied it a long time. I do a lot of evil stuff too, but I thought this is better. And I just thought, well, what if I could combine the two? What if I could take Dracula and then take someone like Jack the Ripper and have them eventually come together and both be vampires? You know, the home I grew up in was just, there were six of us. And my mom was um, bipolar. Back then they called it manic depressive, but she was bipolar. And they still weren't really knowing how to treat it back then. And uh, my father was, you know, really had alcohol problems. And, but it's, it, they were the best parents they could be, I, I guess is the best way to say it. My dad was a military guy. Um, when we got in trouble, you know, we were lined up. And, you know, did you do it? Did you do it? You know, it was that kind of thing. It was that. And he told us he had a fingerprint kit for years. And I think it was just a shoebox with a bunch of crap in it. But we thought that he had it. So, you know, we were, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a tough house to be in. He, he was very strict. But loving and, and, and made me a lot of who I am. I, I would like, um, I'd like people to realize that you can have your dream if you're willing to work for it and that you do need patience, but also you have to have balance in life. You have to balance everything, you know? And I think when you do that, things have a way of falling into place. And maybe that's why I'm having the success I'm having now. At least I like to think so. American Real TV presents author Pamela Rausch. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Pamela Rausch, author of the new book, Dracula Unmasked. Pamela, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so how wonderful does it feel to look at the completion of your book. It's great. It's through your project. Uh, holding it in my hands, actually, when it got delivered, I held it in my hands and then I burst into tears. Because <laughs> it was like just, you know, it's more emotional than you would expect. Yeah. It really, really is. Because it's very hard. You know, you go through, um, you know, doubting phases with it. And, you know, halfway through, you're like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. And um, then you got life going on in the background. You know, I had, you know, a mother-in-law who died who I loved very much. And, and uh, you know, different things like that. And and then all of a sudden, you're like, okay. And then you get the impetus and then you go back. And, and then, you know, your husband struggles. So the way we work that out really is that um, I would actually read things to him and tell him my ideas. And it actually worked well. And, and I would say, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. Uh, the bats are going to fly out of the coal chutes in the library and they're just going to get incinerated. And I would describe it. I said, think of it like a movie. And then he would get excited and then he'd say, and what about if, you know, and so he helped me write it just by um, responding, you know, to, to ideas and what would be cool, especially in a, 
in cinematography because we are going to try to do a Netflix series or something with this if we can. That's wonderful. So, um, and what a great know. experience to be able to have your husband participate in that process, right? right? Because and that's good. writing is yeah. very lonely as it is. <laughs> it is. Right? It's a very solitary pursuit. <laughs> yes. Wow, that's yeah. wonderful. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, we're Thank going to get into to this today. Um, but I would like to read, if I may, this part of the back cover that says, what if someone wrote a tale about Dracula that was different from the rest? Wouldn't it be refreshing to read a vampire story that cuts through Hollywood's glitzy version of vampires and invites the reader into the ethereal realm of otherworldly creatures? Yep. Wow. <laughs> it sounds fascinating. So walk us through the process. I know you've written another book in the past. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll chat about that in a little bit as well. But when someone's writing a book of fiction, talk about the process of inception of an idea. Mm -hmm. And of course, your subject matter being Dracula. Right. How does, a, how does something like this come to life? Well, I, I actually started with a writing course in uh, 2016, and it was just a kind of a creative writing uh, at the college, Delaware County College, and um, didn't get a whole lot out of it, frankly, but I think a window opened, and I was in the insurance industry, and I was trying to write, and I was trying to work, and I traveled, and, and then I just kind of decided, you know what, this is not working for me. I, you know, I've had enough money saved. Uh, financially, we can do this. I want to write full-time, so my husband and I agreed upon it, and then I started writing full-time, really more like 2017. And um, the concept really was, um, I do, I'm really into Victorian um, era, and I'm really into Jack the Ripper, major Jack the Ripper fan. I've, I've studied it a long time. I do a lot of evil stuff too, but I thought this is better. And I just thought, well, what if I could combine the two? What if I could take Dracula and then take someone like Jack the Ripper and have them eventually come together and both be vampires. And you know, you got a guy that's really a bad dude, and then Dracula, who's really a fictional character, but in a way, not really, because there is some basis for fact on you know who he was as far as Vlad the Impaler. And um, I thought, okay, now I got to figure out a way to connect this together. How am I going to take Dracula, who was born in 1431, and you know, how am I going to get him into the Victorian age? So I thought, hmm, well, what would happen if, you know, there was time travel involved? Well, you know, I guess there could be, but then we're going to need some ghosts. So um, I brought a force called the Dark One, which is basically, it's really Satan is very prominent through the whole story, and he's motivating all these evil people. So um, he is uh, represented by the Dark One, who's just really a voice. You know, no one really hears or sees him, he's just a voice, and he directs them to go a certain way. So the premise here is that Vlad's path was just to be a vampire. He had no choice. It was determined for him already. And once he died and became a vampire, then I said, okay, now we need a love interest for him. Well, what's the next badass person I can think of? And that was Countess Bathory, a.k.a. the Blood Countess. Well, she's in 1581. Okay, what are we going to do here? So that's where I realized that's what I'm going to have to do. So then that's where the mirror concept came into play. And I thought, okay, so this dark one's telling him you need to find your wicked partner because together the two of you are going to be an invincible force of evil and you're going to start creating vampires and so forth. Um, unfortunately, he falls in love with her. It's more lust than love, really. But, and they have a very passionate affair, but he realizes that she's such a bad person. He actually fears she'll turn on him. So he decides not to turn her into a vampire, and then her the wrath at him is just incredible. And so she dies, but then the Dark One comes to her and says, well, I really need you to help him be a badass, so I'm going to give you another chance at life, and you're going to go to this ethereal realm in these mirrors where they live, and you're going to help him become who he's supposed to be. But the Dark One pulls a trick on her, and he lets her live again, but he makes her a 12-year-old girl so they can no longer have a sexual liaison. Wow. So this creates a lot of frustration, obviously, on his part, because he's a vampire who does have sex. He's handsome, he's lusty. Um, all vampires, in my opinion, are sexy, except maybe Bella Lugosi. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so they, um, but he ends up having a relationship with her because he still cares about her as a child now. And then they end up um, hooking up with uh, these two ghosts, which were the princes in the tower during the 1483 that were murdered. 
um, very famous thing that a lot of people know that if they study medieval um, history, which I also do. And so the ghosts are trying to find their bones, and the bones were missing for 200 years. So they decide that they're going to help these two children find the bones. And all along, this dark one's getting annoyed because they're getting distracted by all these things that they want to do that instead of just making a bunch of vampires and just taking over the human race, which is what he wants them to do. And so they end up finding the bones, and one of the princes decides to go, and the other one says, no, I'm going to hang out with you guys. I think this is more fun. I, I don't want to go and be buried. I want to you know, hang out and go along with what you guys do. So they end up going um, you know, into, they decide they're going to settle in London, and they want to go into a future time. And so he hasn't found Jack the Ripper yet. That comes later. Um, the Dark One says, I think I have the person for you. This is what I need you to do. And they're very fearful of going into the future at first. Like They're afraid that if they go too far, they won't be able to come back. They're very superstitious characters. So the Dark One tells him, no, 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 you need to go to Whitechapel. There's this guy. He's going to kill and murder people. And he's the perfect, perfect partner for you. So he goes and okay, I'm going to look for Jack the Ripper, and he's going to look for this guy, and he's going to try to hook up with him. And he does, but while this is all going on, he meets Mary Kelly, which was uh, Jack the Ripper's last victim. And he falls in love with her. And then when Jack kills her, he is so furious that that's what makes him turn him. He turns him in anger because he wants to you know, sentence him to eternal life and the curse and so forth. And so Jack the Ripper is the, the antagonist for the rest of the story because he just constantly is doing everything they don't want him to do. He, he ends up becoming gay, and he, and he turns a teenager into a vampire, and then all these crazy things happen, and then they, then they have a bunch of children that are living uh, in London, um, underneath London Bridge, homeless children, and then they start feeding on them, which makes them what, and if you're not a vampire person, you wouldn't know this, but they're um, what they call black swans. So they're feeding on them. They're not vampires, really, but they don't age. So they end up creating this group of children. While all this is going on, um, Vincent Van Gogh and Virginia Woolf both die roughly in that time frame, and they become ghosts because they both committed suicide. So they end up under Trafalgar Square in an abandoned subway station, and then Jack the Ripper ends up bringing the children there so that he doesn't have to deal with them and they feel guilty. And so they set up housekeeping, taking care of these children who sell newspapers and beg and whatever they got to do. And in the meanwhile, Dracula's off on his way trying to start the vampire community. And once Jack gets on board, then they start making the vampires and they all live during the day as bats hanging from the rafters underneath Trafalgar Square. And then they go out at night and do their thing and so forth. So they stay there in England until the Blitzkrieg. And the story goes through the Blitzkrieg and the bombing and all that, which I learned so much researching it. It was so interesting. And so their place where they're living gets bombed, and they have to leave. And the children are all black swans, and they can't go with them in time travel because they have a human component to them. So the only way they can take them is to turn them into vampires. So now they have to turn these five kids into vampires so that they can take them with them and then they are going to go now to New York City. They decide, we want to get away from this. We want to move ahead in time. So they go into New York City during the 60s. And there, they settle under the New York Public Library. The New York Public Library, most don't know this, there's about eight floors of book vaults underneath there. And they are abandoned. So they decide that they're going to find a way in, and they decide they're going to settle there. So that's where the bats live, the, the progeny, if you will. So they start making vampires in a combination of blackmailing uh, people so that they can get them to help them and not making them vampires, like police chiefs and people who have secrets. And they blackmail them and they make them work and do favors for them so they can hide who they really are. And then others they just turn. And then a lot of people end up working in the subways because they're underground all the time. So they turn all these vampires in the subways and they're like the guardians that make sure everything's okay. And you know, and all around Bryan Park, they protect the whole vicinity. So the, the black uh, swan children that are now vampires, they're protected, they're watched over. So little by little, um, other characters come into play. Um, they actually meet the daughter of Paul Revere, who's a ghost. And you know, so there's other characters that just add a little spice to it. And um, they start to build the community and they start to have a pretty, you know, pretty, um, good uh, amount and everything, and they got things under control where they pretty much run the streets. And then there's now this group called the Van Helsings that's formed, and now there's these people that are um, actually, you know, going out trying to track the vampires. So they're dodging that, you know, they've got the vampires. 
Um, and they actually, while this is all going on, um, the Countess, who's the 12-year-old girl, is resentful because Dracula is now consorting with women and having sex and everything, and she's left out. So she makes a point of going around and killing some of his lovers, and, um, and the Dark One also works with, speaks with her, and he decides that he's going to send her to Charles Manson. They want to recruit Charles Manson to be a vampire. So they send her out to California, to the ranch, to this barn ranch where she is, and um, he gives her her adult body back again at that point because he realizes that she's not going to be able to seduce Manson unless he can do that. So she goes out there, and then Dracula realizes she's gone, and he's sad and everything, wondering, you know, is she going to come back? And so the Manson, uh, the Manson thing doesn't work out. She ends up taking off right before it all happens, and she ends up meeting another vampire whose name is Silvio, and he's an Egyptian vampire who is also a white wolf on and off, and they, you know, he becomes a very integral um, character in the book. He's a very powerful vampire. And he ends up uh, meeting up with Dracula, and they all kind of cohort together. Now they've got Jack the Ripper, and they've got them together. But through all of this, other things happen. I mean, there's uh, a battle with Jack the Ripper. I don't know if I want to give everything away, but what ends, what ends up happening is they stay in New York, and they have a lot of different experiences, and they even uh, hook up. Uh, there's even David Berkowitz's in it. And then they get towards 9-11, and then what happens is the main crux of the story is that Dracula really struggles with his humanity. He, had, he wants to be human, he doesn't. He tries going to church, and he'll be in church, and he tries to go back to being... Because at one time, Vlad Dracula fought for Christendom, you know, and he, he tries to regain that, and then he realizes, but I don't fit here, and he goes back and forth, and he's conflicted because he starts to love humanity and how they are, and, and you know, so he actually is there on 9-11 when everything happens, and... He um, is just overwhelmed with how New Yorkers come together, and and it, it, which was true. I mean, I remember it so clearly in my mind. And and as a former New Yorker, you know, I I kind of saw the difference in how New York was before and after. Um, and you know, the story culminates with you know him coming to terms with that and realizing that he's not sure he wants to live forever, and he's not sure he wants to live a life of duplicity anymore. And I'll kind of leave it at that. I don't want to spoil all of it, but uh, so. Wow. Okay. So let's break this down a bit. Are you when you're coming up with the story? Mm -hmm. Are you writing an outline at this point? Are you just writing out ideas? Um, it, Did you feel like I made it was a there? timeline? Well, actually, see this thing you have here. I mm -hmm. made a gigantic board with um, the timeline, and I cut out the characters. I got pictures of the characters, and I pasted them all around, and then I just drew a time grid of where I knew I wanted to touch in. Um, like, well, they were, actually they hook up with the Marquis de Sade in the 17-something, 17, 17 whatever. So I have the different characters that, that keep the reader, it keeps the reader interested, I think, because you, you, know, you, you have a little bit with this guy. And I left out the whole part about them trying to turn Hitler. I forgot about that. See, there's just so much, you know. But basically, I, you know, I just had it laid out. Like, I know that they're going to interact with these people in a different stage. And I know how it was going to end, and that's one of the most important things that people don't realize. If you write an epic story like this, you always have to know how it's going to end before you start. You don't have to worry about the in-between, because I'm not going to lie to you, I didn't. Um, I just found characters I thought were interesting, I researched them, and I'm not talking Google, I'm talking reading five books about Hitler and five books about Manson and books about him, you know, that's important. You can't just Google this, you know. And I just knew that the end result was going to be how it ended on 9-11. And then I just worked my way. And I get ideas. I would take my walks. I always have a little notebook. I take exercise walks and, you know, write everything down. And uh, when I found out about the vaults under the library, that really got me going. That was the impetus, I think. I said, wow, wow, what a great place for vampires to go. And that's kind of started the whole thing going, I think. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned you took a writing course. Mm -hmm. Did any of that help you prepare for this, or was this kind of your own brainchild as far as it, how you... It opened the window. It just opened the window. I, I, I had been writing just the... Uh, the I wrote my uh, fairy uh, story, an elephant fairy story for my, my nieces, and, you know, and I did stuff like that, and then the other uh, book I wrote several years back. But um, I just thought... You know what? And then I started writing short stories, and I have a book of short stories that I never published, and I may at some point. Um, so I started doing that, and then I just wasn't satisfied, and everybody that knew me would read the stories, and my longest one was like 15 pages, and, and they kept saying, I just feel like I want to read more. I don't want them to end so quickly, and that's kind of got me going, and I'm like, maybe I just need to write an epic tale, and, and that's kind of how it evolved, I think.
Yeah. And you did it pretty quickly. Yeah. Looking well, back, I mean, I three, three years, years is three is, years. Is, but, yeah, it seemed long, but... <laughs> but it was your full-time... Yeah, I, I was only full-time in 17, and truthfully, in 19, all I was doing was rewriting. So I guess it wasn't so long that I'm, now that I'm saying it. Right, know. right. Yeah. But the story itself, it just seems... And we, we better put a spoiler alert uh, before the part where you start <laughs> talking about it, because we don't want to ruin it for people that, right, that actually right. want to read the book. But... Um, the story itself and, and how you figured out all these twists and turns right. and periods of time. Now, for example, when Hitler comes into the picture, right. is that a fairly short piece of the book? Well, we, well, what it is, it's several visits. So, so what happens is, um, you know, the Dark One comes to Jack the Ripper. Because what happens is he pits them against each other. He'll go to Dracula and he'll want him to do this. And then he goes to the Ripper on the side and said, I want you to do this. And the Ripper's looking to get out from under Dracula and not have him tell him what to do kind of thing. So when he gets a new task and the Dark One knows how to push his buttons and he knows he likes killing and he knows he likes all that. So it's like, well, you turn Hitler and, and Dracula will be so happy. And, you know, and so he works him, you know. So he goes into his bunker through um, the mirror because they can go into mist and all of that, all the typical vampire things they can do. And naturally, at first, Hitler's like, you know, this is nuts, and he starts shooting at the wall and, you know, going crazy like a, a typical response. Um, but then when he comes the second time, um, he comes into the bunker as a German soldier and with his hat kind of down, and Hitler doesn't realize who it is. And then they start talking. And initially, Hitler pulls out the gun, I'm going to shoot you, what are you, crazy? And then he disarms him and then starts to tell him what he wants to do. And then Hitler starts thinking about it like... And he tells him, you know, I already seen the future. I know you're going to, because see, these guys know the future. So he's like, I know you're going to lose the war and you're going to kill yourself. And it was like, I wouldn't do that. I would never do that. And he goes, yes, you are. And he goes, you know, so he gets him pretty, pretty wired up. And what he does is he has um, Eva, who is what Countess Backley, that's the uh, name she took um, when she became a ghost. And he, she goes into the future and finds information on his death and that picture of his corpse and that the Hitler's going to lose the war. And so Jack brings it to him. And Hitler at first thinks it's, you know, black, you know, this is, this is bullshit, this isn't real. But he starts wondering. So finally Jack says, I've had enough. And he actually bites Hitler. And then at first Hitler's like, oh, I feel kind of different. And all of a sudden Hitler's able to read minds. And he's like, well, this guy says he's a vampire and I don't know if I believe in vampires, but... I can read minds now, so something's not the same. I'm, I am different. So he starts warming to the idea and thinking, well, maybe if I am going to kill myself, maybe I, maybe this is my chance, you know, not. You know. So it, and so it, there's a couple different visits, and then what happens is they go to New York, and Jack goes back in time to do the thing with Hitler. So you revisit that. Yeah, so he goes back in time to, to, to turn him, and then things don't exactly work out because Dracula gets involved and... Just yeah. incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I feel, you know, sometimes when you get those feelings of success, I just feel, based on the little that I know about the story, that it's going to be a huge yeah. success. I'm there's, hoping so. I there's think such it, yeah. a big desire and need. People love Dracula and they love these yeah. different stories. And yeah. it just feels really good to me. Yeah. I, I feel good about it too. And, it, and it's different. It's not like what anyone else has written. And again, I'm never going to say it's the best Dracula book by any means, but it is the most different. And there's just such a twist in the way it all comes together. And you accomplish your goal, right? You know? Yep. Yeah. It was exactly what I wanted to write. It was the Dracula story I wanted to write. Why Dracula? Um, I've been fascinated by him since I was a kid, actually. I really, and, and there is, honestly, there is something sensual about a Dracula character. Um, I think since Anne Rice's movie with Brad Pitt, um, I have a picture of Brad Pitt as the vampire right on my wall. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you, he's one hot guy. <laughs> and I just, um, she brought it real for me. Uh, she's my idol, I swear. It used to be Stephen King, but then I don't know now. Because no, um, just the way that she goes about um, the story, again, with a more empathetic approach. I mean, we all know that vampires are bad dudes and they kill and they, you know, all of that. You know, but there was an, there was an empathetic side to it. And it's the same with Jack the Ripper. He was a killer, a manipulator. But I take a different track and you kind of almost like him some of the time. You know, and it, it's it's more like, you know, well, how did he get to be who he is? And, and, and he actually does some things that he didn't expect, like, there's a part with Bram Stoker. They, Eva goes into the future and meets Bram Stoker at a, at a New Year's Eve party a year or so after he wrote um, Dracula. And then he gives her the book because he's trying to hit on her and he gives her the book, oh, you have to read my book. And then she reads it and she's like, 
holy crap, there's way too many secrets revealed here. So she goes back to Dracula and he says, what do you think we should do? And he goes, we got to stop this. So Dracula goes and visits him. And, you know, and he, he says, uh, well, what, who are you? You know, and he just bursts into his home and he says, well, I'm Dracula. And he just, you know, he denial and all these crazy things. And he says, I need you to rewrite it. And, you know, and he gets pissed off and they have this whole thing. And Bram Stoker basically says, I'm not going to do it, but I'll, let, I'll say yes, I'm going to do it. And then Jack the Ripper ends up realizing that he didn't do what he was supposed to, so he goes back and threatens to cut his wife's hand off if he doesn't do it. And then he goes in and he goes, and I need you to have a character. How about Lucy? And then he makes him change the book to fit what he wants. So. His agenda. And I don't think anybody ever thought of doing that, having somebody come to Stoker and tell him to rewrite it. So I thought that was kind of a clever idea. And it just comes to me, Ryder. I don't know how it does. Sometimes dreams, but um, occasionally. But it just comes to me. Well, I can relate. <laughs> I, I, as I told you, I, I am finishing a novel. It's taken me a lot longer because I am doing it part-time in mm-hmm. my spare time. Um, but I call that the creative unconscious. Yeah. And that came from my writing coach that like when you're yeah. sleeping and mm-hmm. even throughout the day these ideas just yeah. they come and I think it's because as a writer we open our minds to allowing things in right ideas right. and it right. could be in the something you least expect yeah. something you hear on the news or something you read and then the ideas just start oh, to, oh, to absolutely come. and you know it's not like you're stealing anyone's ideas it's just a matter and I'm very careful about that because there is a lot of vampire stuff written so I wouldn't ever want to cut come across that way um, I think I mean there's some things you can't help I mean you know certain aspects of the character are that they are what they are um, but I think sometimes I'll just see something walking around somewhere that's why like when I write I'll get to the point where I'm just like oh my god I gotta get out of this house and then I'll go out and I'll just and I volunteer at Bryn Mawr Hospital I take uh, transport take kids people to their cars and stuff when they're coming out and it, it, it gives me ideas, it gives me inspiration. I watch people that can barely walk and they're happy and they're, you know, and then there's people that are just walking misery and they're just, you know, and it, it, it's such a difference. But it, it, you, you're grateful for what you have, but, but more importantly, it just opens up ideas for characters and traits and, you know, so um, I make a point of just getting out and just walking around and just being around people and around wherever it might be. And you do, you get the most surprising ideas. I saw, actually there's an albino in my story called Samil, and um, she ends up, she's a homeless girl that ends up staying with them. And I saw an albino girl, I was out somewhere, and I saw her, and I'm like, oh, okay, and then boom, you know. That's a character. And that was it, and yeah. she became a pretty important character. Um, and they, she ends up with Silvio, the, the vampire who's a white wolf and all, and he ends up, um, uh, turning her into a vampire because she gets the police pick her up and then they realize that eight years ago she was picked up in Central Park for causing a, a carriage ride incident. And that's where all the New York stuff has in Central Park and the plaza. I have all that in there. And they realize that she didn't age and everything so the dark one says you got to get her off the street. They're going to figure something out. And so he ends up falling in love with her as a, as a child. And then he lives in the Dakota building, which I love the Dakota. Where is and that? Um, the Dakota building is is where John and Lennon live, where he okay. got shot. Yes, and it's right in that in that area. And um, well, I'm sorry, it's up in eighty uh, fourth Street. It's way up. Upper West, or yeah, upper it's East? Upper West. Okay. I think. Okay. Yes. And um, you know, so there's that part, and he ends up taking her into the past to what it was like when it was first built, when there was all farms and Central Park was just carriage rides in the park mm-hmm. and all that, and. You know, so I love the the going back and forth. I just love it. You know, it's just something that you know I I enjoy. You know, I really enjoy. So when you mentioned Van Gogh is part has a character in the book, you know, I lit up because I love his work and um, did a little bit of study on him. But tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I I just thought because I paint also. Uh, I just thought it would be interesting to have him in it. And initially, it just started off where, okay, he, you know, he killed himself. And he was really shunned by the people in Arles where he painted and everything. But he had used to, when he was younger, he painted in Trafalgar Square. So when he realized he's dead, when he realizes that he's in the afterlife and that, he, that he's not going to go to hell, which is what he was waiting for, and that this is it, he says, well, what am I staying here for? So he goes to Trafalgar Square and he finds the abandoned station where the vampires end up going 
and he just starts painting and he just he just goes into art places and stuff at night because he's a ghost and he just gets what he needs and so he starts painting and he just goes over and over again and then once he starts hooking up with Dracula and Jack the Ripper you know they all like him he's an old, you know he's kind of like an old man to them and they all get supplies for him and the kids are stealing paint for him and he starts painting and what happens is he starts painting these prophetic paintings that project uh, future events. So at one point he paints a picture of Martin Luther King's assassination before it happens, and and they're just you know kind of well, what is this? What made you paint this? And he starts getting these images, and he actually paints pictures of 9/11 also, with commercial airliners going towards the building, and 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 this is just after the buildings were just built in the 70s, right. and they're like, well, what you know? So the whole thing. So when the police end up raiding where they are and figuring out that something's going on and they find the paintings, then they start thinking that this must be a terrorist cell. And so it just evolves into a very more modern saga with police precincts and, and uh, they're arresting vampires and they're exploding into flames on the steps of the precinct and the press is there and the post and the, yeah, the modern stuff is pretty cool too. There's, there's a lot that goes on. Your so. imagination is incredible. <laughs> just incredible. I can't wait to read this. Yeah, I, 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 um, I really want to make it into something, a production. That, that's my goal. Well, yeah. I feel I you have all, all the pieces here to, to yeah. do that. Um, let's talk about your background a bit. Uh, I know you, you spent time in New York. Mm-hmm. Back, back in the, when was it, the yeah, 70s? Yeah, from like the 70s until 88. And what, yeah. was, what was New York like back oh, then? Oh, gosh, so different. Um, you know, the 70s was still kind of coming off the Woodstock generation a little bit, and you know, and uh, lots of flowing skirts and all that, and all of a sudden things kind of transitioned into this disco mania. Um, I actually saw um, Saturday Night Live being filmed. Um, it was actually, the co- there's a coffee shop scene that was filmed at a place called Fisherman's Corner, which was right where my apartment building, so the whole thing was cordoned off. But we, you know, we were able to see that and a couple of Woody Allen movies being made and... Um, okay. And then I worked for a company that right next to it was Studio 54. And I, you know, I was making no money or anything, you know, but my boss was like a millionaire and this guy was crazy. And he um, got us in there and I was there, hand to God, the night that Bianca Janker, Nick bought her a horse and they arranged for her to ride the horse into Studio 54. And I'm sitting there like, and this, she's walking in or riding in on this horse and, you know, the culture back then was like, you know, I, the big thing back then was cocaine. And, and you know, the, when you, in the basic area where you first walked in was kind of pristine. But then they had these balconies that would go up here and, and you'd go up there and everybody was just laying down lines of coke. And I mean, it was, and, it, and I just think police just looked the other way. I mean, they just had other things, better things to do. Mm. Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was crazy. Wow. It was crazy. How do you think that, impacted your um, introduction of New York to the story? Do you think you living there had some impact oh, on Oh, that? yeah, yeah, because I, you know, I, um, I used to write a lot of poetry back then. That was my big thing back then, lots of poetry, and I've had a lot of it published. Um, and I used to have this one park bench in uh, Greenwich Village where I used to write. And in 2012, I took my husband back there, and we took a picture of me sitting on the same bench, which was pretty cool. That's great. Um, and I spent a lot of time in Central Park, sitting on the rocks, um, sketching, right? Kind of did a little of both. Um, and um, I um, always loved that area. And I, I know that, like, Columbus Circle and, mm-hmm. and all around with the plaza, I, I always remember just walking around and, and looking at the, the wealthy people and just thinking to myself, they live in such a different world. And it fascinated me. I wanted to get inside their heads and see what their lives were really like. And, and, I, and I wrote stuff about it and all. And I, I mean, I guess I wanted to have money, but more like just be more comfortable than I was. I mean, I was just a secretary, you know, not making a lot of money. And, um, you know, um, even our boss, I mean, you know, the culture was different. Um, you know, you talk about Me Too now and all this stuff that's going on. And, and um, I mean, it, there was no Me Too because there wasn't even human resources. I mean, you had an office manager or maybe you just had a bookkeeper who was, oh, and by the way, you're in charge of anything that happened. You know, that's how it was. And, and Teddy was this um, wealthy uh, Jewish guy. And um, he ended up buying a limousine because he just didn't want to rent them all the time. So he bought a limousine and his, his, he lived on Central Park South right over the park. And when you came in in the morning, he would go, darling, and he would go like that. And we all had to kiss him on the cheek. All the secretaries had to kiss him on the cheek and get his coffee. And um, 
the second week I was there, I was in the kitchen getting coffee, and he comes up behind me, and he just grabs my breast, and I'm like, what the, you know, and I, and I kind of like pulled away, and he starts giggling, and then he leaves, and so I went over to Judith, who was, you know, the office manager, and I'm like, Judith, what's up with him, you know? Oh, he does that to all the new girls. Don't worry, you'll get used to it. <laughs> you know? He goes, he'll give up after a while. And, you know, the thing is, I needed my job. You know, I'd just broken up from a marriage, and I was, you know, living in an apartment, and, you know, money was tight. And so, you know, that's what happened. You had to put up with that stuff, you know, and women did, you know. And, and it's, um, I, think, I think it's getting a little carried away now. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I think there was a, when it first happened, I thought it was, you know, a, a good thing, and I, I said it's about time, and, um, you know, and I'll actually tell you something related to that. But um, So bottom line is I can tell you there were a few experiences like that that I had with employers. And, um, you know, I just put up, and I think a lot of us did. I'm not alone, I know. And um, in, I don't know, several years ago, I was on a, um, a work trip um, with an enroller, a guy that he worked for me. And he was usually very respectful, and we had to travel together for seven weeks. And, you know, my husband, you know, and he was a decent-looking guy. And, but, you know, we have total trust. And I, you know, and I said, look, you don't have to worry. And he goes, I, I believe you. That's fine. And the guy would come to my house and pick me up on a Sunday because usually we had to fly out on a plane. He would shake my husband's hand. Don't worry. She's in good hands. And he was always a consummate gentleman. And then one night um, we were at, uh, the, the, at the hotel, or not the hotel, the um, airport. Flight was delayed. And we had a few drinks, and we got on the plane, and he just, like, took his hand and just stuck it right down my shirt, like, while I'm on the plane, and I'm like, <laughs> and I got so furious, but I couldn't do anything, because, like, you know, there was, you know, you know, you just, I couldn't do anything. But I, my face was like this, and I didn't talk to him the whole rest of the flight. And I got back to the hotel room, and I, I just tossed, and I turned, and I didn't, you know, and I'm like, I put up with this my whole life, in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s. And at this point, I was probably in my early 50s. And, you know, I mean, I still have what I like to think some sex appeal, you know. And I, So I get it. It happens, you know. But, like, the guy crossed the line, and I'm like, and I just sat there on the bed, and I was like, am I going to let this go like I've done my whole damn life? This man works for me. Or am I going to make a stand here? And I just said, I, I have to. So I picked up the phone and I called his employer because he worked for me, and I told him what happened. And you know they were like, "Okay, well he's fired," you know. And I'm like, "Well, that's all well and good, but you know he's got a computer with two thousand names, addresses, and social security numbers of my clients, so I cannot do anything right now." We have, you know, I was worried about it, you know. So it all kind of worked out. I mean, I ended up calling my husband. Of course, he wanted to put a hit on him, you know, all the typical things a husband would do. But I said, "Listen, I got it covered. I have to be a professional here." So we got through the week. Um, I said nothing two words to him except for just what we had to do, um, and then when he got back, they you know they let him go. And the Good interesting thing the interesting thing was that we went to dinner after I got the whole thing happened, and my husband had told his mother and father about it. And um, his mother looks at me and she goes, "Why did you have to make him lose his job?" And I just said, "Mom." She goes, well, I mean, I mean, when we were, we always got chased around the desk. That's just the stuff that happened, and, and, and boys will be boys. I said, mother. I said, that's not acceptable, and it's not acceptable in today's world. And it just, and it, it made me sad that she felt that way, yeah. you know? Don't you think that's generational, though? Yeah, it is, and right. that's why I had to let it go. Right. You know, it's like trying to talk to her about the priest thing. You just can't, you know? Right. It's generational, and I get it. But I did feel like I had to do it. I had to make a stand. Um, and it just felt like it made up for all the other times. And yeah. I also thought of other people. I thought, of, well, he's probably done this to other women. Sure. And I don't know what made him think I was going to respond, and certainly not on an airplane for crying <laughs> out loud. I mean, at least do it in a place where it could go somewhere. It just seemed like the silliest thing. You know, and it's, um, you know, now it's a little tough, though, because now I think... Um, you know, a man just doesn't even know what to do, you know. I, it's, I feel a little sad for men because I think a few are maybe getting a bad rap, you know. And I think when you take it too far, then you make a mockery of me too. You, know, mm. you have to find some kind of balance, right. you know, yeah. in, in my mind. Again, I, when I, as you're telling these stories, I just think about, okay, the creative side of you. You've, you've had all these life experiences, right? right? So don't they somehow play into that creativity? Where when you're when you're thinking about scenes to write, 
Um, oh, sure. You know, all that, you know, all that life experience sure. from what you, you know, Absolutely. living in New York and... Oh, yeah. It, it has and to characters, be, you know, sure. when you're making, you know, a character, it's, it's actually in, in, the, in the story, um, Eva's at a um, 2000 party. Remember when uh, Trump was running for president? And it didn't pan out, but so he meets her and, and tries to get her to come back, you know, to, for some drinks or whatever. And uh, she and I never mention his name. I just talk about I describe him and he's drinking a Diet Coke. And then she says, he says, you know, I thought you knew I was running for president. And she doesn't because she just popped in from the past, you know, and she's like, oh, OK, yeah. Aren't you that real estate mogul? Are you going to run for president? She goes, well, I sure hope you handle your finances better than uh, the company's finances better than your own. And then he gets kind of, you know, bent out of shape and everything. And then he says, well, you know, I'm going to make America great again. And that's all I do. Okay. So it's not specific. <laughs> I had well, to you do it. it in there. I that's had good. to do it. That's good. And I'm sure he'll appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt very much he would read it. <laughs> um. Great. So I wanted to um, also talk about your your first book, and um, it was called sorry, it was called Chasing Snow Angels. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about that. Um, okay. So when again back to nine eleven because um, that was my first real novel, and 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 the reason why I did it then was because when nine eleven happened, it, obviously I was very rattled. Um, as everyone was, but I was rattled too because of being a former New Yorker. Like I took it really personally. And I said, boy, I better write that damn novel because, you know, I'm running out of time. So um, I, it, it, was, it was an autobiographical, largely, you know, with a little bit of, you know, play. But, um, you know, the home I grew up in was just, there were six of us. And my mom was um, bipolar. Back then they called it manic depressive, but she was bipolar. And they still weren't really knowing how to treat it back then. And uh, my father was, you know, really had alcohol problems. And... But it's, it, they were the best parents they could be, I, I guess is the best way to say it. My dad was a military guy. Um, when we got in trouble, you know, we were lined up and, you know, did you do it? Did you do it? You know, it was that kind of thing. It was that. And he told us he had a fingerprint kit for years, and I think it was just a shoebox with a bunch of crap in it, but we thought that he had it. So, you know, we were, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a tough house to be in. He, he was very strict. But loving and, and, and made me a lot of who I am. Um, you know, he was loving and um, taught us a lot of things and all that, but he was a very stern disciplinarian and not so much physical, I mean a little, but um, back then a lot of people did, you know. Yeah. It was more verbal, verbal, I think, more emotional things. Uh, we had one year where something minuscule happened, certainly not worthy of what happened, and he actually threatened to cancel Christmas. And, you know, um, we all just sat there and like, what do you mean? You can't, can't, you know, we're all looking at each other. And, and then he said, well, I'm going to go in the other room and you guys can talk it over. One of you better come clean or I'm canceling Christmas. This was maybe four days before. And, um, you know, my older sister said, I'm just going to take the rap. I'm going to say I did it. And so she went in and he looked at me and he goes, I know it wasn't you. So I'm still canceling Christmas. So it was a Thursday. So we all went to school and all night, none of, I didn't sleep. It was the worst thing, memory I have. I swear, as far as like mental. And I'm like, I can, we came home from school on Friday and the tree was down and the decorations were down. And I'm like, holy cow, he's gonna cancel Christmas. And it was so devastating. And then he didn't because it, you know, he came up out of it at the last minute, but it didn't matter because the damage was done. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, and, and that's the stuff he did. I mean, it just, it might've been the alcohol. I, I wanna say it probably was, um, but in any case, the problem with my mother was difficult because she, um, by the time I was eight or nine, you know, I knew that it was bad. And my brother was born when I was 10 and I ended up taking care of him a lot um, because, you know, she was just getting really bad. And um, she used to try and kill herself regularly. Um, I found her many times, most of the time I would say. I'm, I'm sure my older siblings do too, but I don't know. Um, and she would, I knew she didn't really want to die because she would leave notes and she'd leave him somewhere and then she'd be in the basement and she'd take the pills and so we'd always get her in time and I remember riding in the ambulance with her with the mask and the, you know, mm. and, and you know, we always just thought, well, she's gonna come back, she's gonna come back. And so when I was um, 15, um, she came, well, I should say when I was 14, she got institutionalized because they just couldn't help her. And I only went to see her once and I remember thinking, oh, I'm gonna go there and oh my God, I hope she's not going to be weaving baskets because back then that was the joke. And I walked in the room and she was 
God's honest truth, she was weaving a basket and she had this spacey look on her face and I'm like, oh my God. And then I couldn't go anymore. And then the next year she came home for Christmas and um, I went out to go to my girlfriend's house for a little while, see what she got for Christmas kind of thing. It was Christmas night and my younger siblings were home and I had this weird feeling like something wasn't right and I was close to the house and I heard an ambulance and I'm like, hmm. And I didn't, didn't want to stay anymore. And I'm like, I'm going to go home. And I went home and all the lights were on. And I knew something was wrong because my dad used to always yell, what is this? Con Edison, uh, Thomas Edison's house, you all got the lights on. And I and my sisters were sitting there watching TV. And my brother was asleep because he was still little. And I said, what happened? Oh, mom took pills again. They're pumping her stomach. I guess she'll be home later. Like that's how it got to be for us. It was so commonplace. So um, then I woke up in the morning and the next door neighbor was sitting on our bed crying. And I'm like, what is she doing here, you know? And then she's like, your mother's gone, and you know, this whole thing. It was very hard. So the neighbor told you. Yeah, so so I, and I wrote the book about that because I wanted to understand who my parents were before. So I made up their life. So it goes through, two, through time frame. It goes through the 9-11 when it just happened. It starts off with 9-11 with my friend Teresa, and I'm going to visit her. and. And so forth, and then I'm at my mom's gravesite, you know, talking to her about 9/11 and how it impacted me in Massachusetts, where she's buried. And then um, I went back to when my parents met each other and dating, and how they had the kids and everything. And I tried to make up their life because I wanted to understand who they were before they became ill, you yeah. know. And then, so I went through the different phases like that. So I went back and forth with my life, and then, um, you know, then I went. You know, I left home and, you know, we all went about our lives and all of it. A lot of us do have substance abuse issues. Um, I, I gave up drinking 10 years ago. Um, and I, 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 I didn't do AA and I didn't even know if I needed AA. I just thought it's not working in my life and I was scared, you know. And my sister died the year before and partly it was from, you know, partly that. So, um, you know, so I just, um, but anyway, after I went away to, you know, college and all that and I broke up my marriage, um, through 78 or whatever it was and everything, um, I just, um, things just came to a head for me um, and I tried to kill myself and I mm -hmm. slashed my wrist and I was in the hospital and they kept me there for a couple of days and, and then I had to go see a therapist. So I decided that I would tell the rest of my story through the therapist, through sessions in the therapy and it just seemed like a good idea and it, it worked well, you know. And I'm not ashamed of it either because I know I would never do it again and I know that I'm grateful that it didn't succeed. Um, and it's a very statistical thing that people that parents commit suicide that that they may try. Know that. Um, yeah, it's a very high statistic. The same like it's a high statistic if you know you have alcoholism and right. you know the same sure. kind of thing. So um, so I just thought this story was important to tell because it does end well. Um, that this girl who I named Elizabeth because I just like the name um, ended up happy at the end. You know after she could get past. The, the guilt, because I felt very guilty about my mom dying, yeah. because I was, you know, the other ones lived at home, but I spent more time with her, I think, because I, we used to watch Shirley Temple movies, that was one of the things she liked to do, and um, I always felt like I should have read the signals, and I didn't, you know, and I knew it wasn't right for me to feel that way, but it didn't matter, because those kinds of things are not rationalized, you know, right, right. Um, and I, I think I was just driven, um, you know, just to, to tell the story. The interesting part was, um, you know, his family wanted to read it, and it was very personal, and it had a lot of, some racy stuff about New York and things, and and I wasn't really sure what to do, and I'm like, you know what, I guess I won't worry. So my mother-in-law comes to me, and she goes, I'm not going to read it. And I said, okay, Mom. She goes, I, I think there might be things in there that I don't want to know. And I said, okay, Mom, that's okay. But my father read it, father-in-law, and my father passed too, but my father-in-law read it, and the aunts read it. I had some aunts at the time. So we go over there for dinner, and they all have the book, and they're all saying, you did a great job, congratulations, and we're all sitting at the table, and, and Dad said, you know, is everything in that book true? And I said, Daddy, I said, it's a novel. I said, I probably embellished, I, I switched things around. Um, no, not necessarily. I, and I said, and I'm not going to answer questions about what's true and what's not. And he looked so agitated, and the aunt over, uh, Hildy was agitated. I'm okay, oh, what is bothering you guys? Well, you had that one scene where your te your high school art teacher seduced you, and I, well, I did that happen because that's just wrong. And I said, no, I embellished that. I said, but he did hit on me. <laughs> I said, but 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 no. And you should have seen the relief in their face. It was like, okay, wow. 
they didn't care about anything sure. else but that. They wanted to make sure you were okay. <laughs> so wow. it was very cathartic. I mean, yeah, I did my therapy and all that, but this was like kind of like another therapy after the fact, and it wow. was good. You know, it was good. Do you feel like you were born to write? Um, I think so, because I started writing poetry at nine or ten. You know, my first thing in school that I did was I wrote a man from Uncle episode. They told us to write a story about what we did on vacation, and I went up to the teacher, and I'm like, can I write a television episode? And she, well, Pamela, it, it, what kind of television? I said, well, I really like the man from Uncle. She, okay. So I was very young, and I, that's what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I think so. And what's next? What's after this? Do you have another Dracula no Dracula. I, I will, I'm doing right now um, a book called, um, well, it's just the name that I probably won't keep, but A Monster Called Frankenstein. So what I'm going to do is a different take on Frankenstein. Most people don't know that the book was written um, on a, it was, it was almost like a, a, a game. So um, what happened was uh, Mary Shelley and her husband and Byron and John Polidori, who wrote a vampire novel, who was a doctor but liked to write, and they were all staying at Villa Diodati, which was in Geneva. And it was the summer, what they called the year without summer, because there was some volcanic thing going on or whatever, and it rained like all summer. And so they would stay up at night reading each other gothic stories and tales and things. And, and then one, uh, one night, Byron said, well, why don't we all write our own ghost story? And so, okay, so, and that's what happened. So Mary's was, she wrote Mary, uh, Frankenstein. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my take on it is that I'm going to make Frankenstein come to life, and he actually haunts her and comes in and out of her life and he actually the story really happens that she didn't think was a real person and he ends up going off on an ice floe because that's what ends up happening and supposedly he dies or whatever well I have it that he freezes in time and he freezes because he can't age anyway but he freezes for so many years and he ends up in Jack the Ripper's time I love Jack the Ripper I can't help myself so he's going to find his way to Jack the Ripper and the reason why he does this is because he finds out that he's terrorizing Whitechapel and that they're calling him a monster. And since he considers himself a monster because Mary calls him a monster, he decides that I need to find another monster. So he goes to Jack the Ripper. And then Byron actually becomes a vampire because that, that there's a lot about that where people you know, question his fixation with that. So somehow I'm going to, it will involve vampires and, and creatures and things like that, but it'll just be a little different. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> now, will you do the same process with the board? And have you started? I don't think I have to. Okay. Um, I don't know now if I'm going to bring as many characters into it, but okay. um, I do love the Victorian era, so I feel like I would really enjoy um, visiting that again. Um, I got a lot of research ahead, though. <laughs> That's great. Wow. So, Pamela, what do you think about technology and modern day technology, how it may or may not impact your work or? play into, right. uh, you know, the reality of these books as well. Right. Well, you know, I, the technology aspect of it um, in terms of, you know, Google's great. I mean, you can, you can look up anything you want. If I'm writing about a certain era, I can, I can pull up a picture of what it looks like, even the inside of places. Um, so in that regard, it is very helpful. Um, when I was writing about the 60s in New York, I didn't live there in the 60s. Um, so, you know, to be able to pull up Times Square in the 60s and know that there was a Regal shoe store over here and there was this store, a Canadian club, there's a big flashing, you know, things that we don't have anymore, um, that's very helpful. Um, it, it doesn't give me the full research. I mean, if I just need a little bit about somebody when they were born, when they were died, what year they wrote this book or what year they did this or, or a historical battle or something, it's wonderful. It gives you just enough to go on. Um, uh, but you have to go more deeper, obviously, into research for something more in-depth. Um, what's, what's negative about, and, 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 and of course, the whole computer, writing on the computer, it's so much faster, and being able to, you know, zoom through something and edit something and, and all of that. But I do use a lot of notes and a lot of writing regular style also. And I keep every single note, like every note that I have is in my folder for the book. I'll never throw it away. I think it's priceless, you know. But... The downside of the technology, I think, is just, um, I do think we're becoming dehumanized in some way. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I always think, I always use this example, you know, my husband and I fell in love like love at first sight. And I know it doesn't happen to everybody, but it happened to us. And I was supposed to be going to a party to meet some guy they were going to hook me up with, and he was just going to a block party. And he walked by, and he, he was tan, he had this diamond earring, and he, was, and he was just gorgeous. And I was just like, who is this? 
And, you know, he ended up doing the same thing, but I didn't know it till later. And then it was just that way. And I thought to myself, these kids, they're, they're, all, they're, they're going on apps to find people. And I, I don't say that's bad because I get it. It's hard now. But, you know, how can you meet the man of your dreams or how can you have a love at first sight if you're like this when the guy walks by, you know? And, and, and these kids aren't present-minded anymore. You know, there's five kids together. And guaranteed one or two of them is looking at their phone or talking with somebody else who isn't there. And I can remember on a Saturday hanging out with my friends and we were all arm in arm just talking and, and it, you know, it, you can't say it's wrong. I'm just worried about what it's going to do. And, it, and people are coming desensitized. You know, they just cut you off because they got the phone over here and they, and they just don't, they don't care. And not everybody, you know, but so I don't know. I, I think technology might be going too far sometimes and there's no help for it because it's, it's just going to keep going. Um, I, I read somewhere that the millennials, you know, the malls, are, I mean, you can see them, they're dead already. Uh, the millennials would rather walk into a room because this is going to be the malls of the future. They're going to have this like thing like this and you stand in front of it and it takes your measurements and then it just brings out the outfits electronically and you just try them on and you, what's the fun of that? You know, it, it's what they're, they're, oh, this is great, wonderful. Click a button and don't get me wrong, I use Amazon. But there's something to be said for interaction with salespeople and look, watching a mother with her kid and, and, and maybe they're on a ride and there's something, somebody's eating an ice cream. I don't know. I just observe. I, I, and yeah, if, we're losing a lot of that. Yeah. If we stop you know, being out doing our daily lives, that's when, something, that's when things happen sometimes. You could be meeting the guy of your dreams, picking out cantaloupe, but it isn't going to happen now. And I was just going to say, the challenge is it's not going to slow down. You no. know, and I see it with my own kids and yeah. with their friends. And, and how they have to tell them that they got to turn their phones off so that, yeah. you know, and, and, that, and that's good that the parents, you know, are mindful of that. Um, but uh, I, it worries me, you know. It's a I different guess. time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm showing my age, I guess. <laughs> so it would be great if we could touch on, you mentioned in a, uh, there's a little scene in the book about uh, maybe the current president who you don't name, <laughs> but I'm, um, I'm wondering about your thoughts about the current uh, political climate. Um, you know, and I, I, um, I think the division in the country is a, is a little scary. Um, I um, actually thought Trump was going to do a better job than he's done, and he's done some of the things he said he was going to do, and I acknowledge that. Unfortunately, he's a buffoon, and that's the tough part. You know, it, it's just... Um, I thought maybe somebody would be able to help him uh, class it up a little. Or I, I don't know what the right words are exactly, but um, he just—he just. But the problem is, he's—he's he's a businessman. He's not a politician, and I think that's the issue that people don't recognize. Um, and if you look back in time, you can see that there were a lot of things that he did where he was actually um, a, a, an advocate for um, not having racism be a prevalent uh, sentiment. You know, and I think he. You know, and now everybody is just looking at it like it, it almost seems like you can't. It's either you hate his guts or, or you know what I mean. And I don't know if it, he, any president can really have that. You know, Obama, he made a lot of mistakes, but he was an honorable man, and he he was very dignified in the way, and he was a great orator. So that that helped him a lot. You know, but did he do everything right? Of course not. And now with this whole thing with the Mueller report and everything, I mean. All we do is just waste our time trying to figure out if there was collusion or there wasn't collusion, and nothing's getting done. The health crisis is worse than ever. I mean, I had to go without insurance at the beginning of uh, well, three months at the beginning of this year because we were making going through a transition. And I'm sorry, it was last year, but I just took a three-month chance, and I'm I'm very healthy, and and I got lucky. But it, the premium they wanted from me was something like thirteen hundred dollars a month, and we just didn't have it, you know. And I just think. Um, we need to address the problems and we need to do something more concrete. And now that the Mueller report didn't give the Democrats what they want, now they're still wanting. You know, somebody has to step in here and say, enough, enough. You know, it's just, you just have to, you just have to like start focusing on improving this country. Yeah. And, you know, you know I think a lot of it has to do with perception. Yeah. But I think that I have the winning ticket to all this. <laughs> do you want to know what it is? I sure do. <laughs> Turn it off. <laughs> I've turned it off. Well, to a degree, you have to. And yeah. it, it just, to me, I, I, I hear everything you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, my only response is, 
turn it off because <laughs> it's our choice whether we want to listen or not. No, and right? I don't. And, I don't and, all the time. So yeah. I, I agree with yeah, you. Though, yeah. You know, and it's hard sometimes to resist the urge. It is. You know, it because is. they sensationalize everything. That's right, and it is. That's you why know? I said it's all. I, yeah. I feel, in my yeah. opinion, it's all perception. Yeah. You, anyone could spin just like you right. are spinning this book the way you want. Right. Someone could take this. Right. This <laughs> upside down. I hope right. you don't read it upside and, down. And, and spin it a different way where it's a different story. Right. So right. that's what I feel, yeah. you know, and, and and I agree with you. It's it's getting a bit ridiculous. Yeah. But I'm actually I find it comical. I I, I, I look at it because of the creative <laughs> person in me with my writing. It's you know, it's it's good comedy. Yeah, it it can be comical at times. It, yeah. it really is. I, I think that if they I think they would help a lot if we set some term limits on the um the, the, the politicians. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, Pelosi, I mean, you know, it, listen, the, man, the woman's done a lot. She's very intelligent. She's very, you know, but the point is, you do need to get a little more young blood in there. You know, I mean, Mitchell McConnell, he's like lurch. I mean, you know, it's like, come on. You, you, we, that's what I think would help. Mm-hmm. But they do it with the, with the terms of, you know, the president. So, you know, politicians ought to have a little, maybe not four years, but, you know, I don't know if they should be in it for 30. Right. You know, because it's hard for them to embrace younger thinking, I think. And you need to give the people that are going to be running the world a chance. Sure. You know? And our nation's facing a lot of important topics right Absolutely. now between, you know, uh, immigration. Oh, yeah. It's sad. It's very sad and, what's happening. Yeah. So you know? hopefully, as you said, they, they get past some of this so right. they could. Yeah. I mean, I, I say it kind of tongue in cheek that it's comical. Right. I. I I laugh at some of it, right. but at the same time, there's a lot of serious issues happening right now. Well, and, sure, and some a, of it is very sad. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't, you know, I get the point about we can't just let everyone in continuously forever. There does have to be some guidelines, um, and but I also don't think you can blame the president on everything that happens to people who have made a choice to come without being invited. I don't want to sound insensitive because I'm not. I don't want to see children separated. I don't want to see any of that. Um, but maybe if they let this whole election thing go and this collusion and the Russia and everything else and let it go, what do you do for it? Make sure you're on top of it for 2020 that it doesn't happen again. That's what they should focus on. And then what can we do to help these poor people yeah. You know that, that, that are fleeing from terrible conditions? Let, let's focus on that. And we would have the time and the money. You know how much it costs for that Mueller investigation? Yeah, forty million or something. Yeah, like that. it needs yeah. to be done. <laughs> Pamela, if you were to take out your cell phone and call the twenty-year-old Pamela, what would you say to her? <laughs> you finally got a book published. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's probably been my dream for a long time. Great. And Any I, advice you would give that? I, I young think, Pamela. I think. Um, I think I needed to be a little more patient, um, you know, but um, I was a lot more troubled back then, frankly, and that's a big part of it. I have a wonderful husband, a wonder I mean, his family embraced me like nobody could ever embrace somebody, and they treated me like a daughter from day one, and sisters and brother-in-laws, they're just all wonderful, all loving. You know, I, I can't complain. I'm very blessed. Well, thank you for sitting down with us today. Uh, thank you for this having me. This is a fascinating <laughs> story. I, I don't think I've ever heard a story like this. It's great. I can't wait to read it. And I have some friends I'd who love are... To, I'd love to hear what you think. And yeah. it is for sale on Amazon, so... Great. And how you know. else could people uh, reach you? Um, are well, you on social I, media? I, I'm on social media, yep. And um, my website is under construction because um, I need help with that. Okay. <laughs> Again, technology, you know. Um, so it's not quite ready yet, but um, you know I am on on Facebook, and that's okay. the main thing I I do more than Twitter, really. Okay, we'll yeah. put the links in the show notes as well. Yeah. yeah. And before I let you go, I have one last question. Okay. What do you want your legacy to be? I, I would like um, I'd like people to realize that you can have your dream if you're willing to work for it, and that you do need patience, but also you have to have balance in life. You have to balance everything. I, that's why I volunteer at the hospital. You have to balance. You have to, you have to give back and take at the same time in life. I think it's very important. You know? And I think when you do that, things have a way of falling into place. And maybe that's why I'm having the success I'm having now. At least I like to think so. Fantastic. Pamela Rausch, thanks so much. And best of luck with your book. Thank you so much.
Thanks for tuning in to American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. And speaking of podcasting, our next course will be starting soon. So if you're interested in launching your own podcast, join me at Podcast Your Passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting, where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information.